because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm your host, Alex Epstein. Today, as usual, I'm joined by my colleagues, Don Watkins in Pennsylvania. Hey, Don. Hello. And Stefan Henna in Germany. Hey, Stefan. Hello. So sometimes I begin the show with a monologue, but I looked at the stories that you guys have for today, and each of you have four stories. Each of you has four stories, I should say, that we really should cover. So no monologue from me today. Let's just jump in with Don. Don, what's your first story today? So one of the topics that we come back to a lot is the limitations of wind and solar and how their intermittency makes them expensive and makes this idea of 100% renewable or anything close to it impossible. But a leading environmentalist and somebody who you quote at length in the moral case for fossil fuels, Alex Amory Lovins, along with one of his colleagues, they have a piece in the New York Times recently where they're claiming the opposite. And I would stress this issue of claim because it's shocking how little they argue for it. So essentially what they claim is that we can replace all of uh, coal and oil and nuclear and most uh, or large portion of natural gas and be 100% renewable, mostly from wind and solar, in, according to them, in a way that will save us $5 trillion compared to business as usual. And so... I mean, I kind of wish we could go line by line through this thing, but just to give people a sense of how this argues, and then we can talk about some of the problems with it, just to get at this issue of affordability and reliability. So on the affordability issue, this is more or less the entirety of their argument. They say abundant market data show that a renewably powered future would cost less than our current system. And then they have a link uh, to a study from an organization called Energy Innovation. And Energy Innovation, this is, I mean, it's a super partisan organization. Their mission, they say, is to accelerate progress in clean energy. And if you look at this, it's not a, it's like a, a lot of these studies, it doesn't look at the all-in actual cost of a grid running on wind and solar because there is no such grid. They just have what are called, um, uh, I always forget the acronym, the LCOE, Levelized Cost of Energy Study, where they claim that renewable- Electricity usually. Electri- I uh, well, I think it's energy, but in this case, they're only looking at electricity. And the um, the, the the studies don't actually look at the all-in cost, including the need to have life support for wind and solar and the impact of uh, wind and solar on requiring reliable energy to function- inefficiently. So it's, I mean, it's not a real apples to apples comparison, but the, to me that just that alone, like that is their argument. And, uh, it's the equivalent of, if our, you know, we submitted an op-ed that said actually renewables are expensive. And then we link to the heritage foundation or something like nobody would regard that as a, an acceptable argument, uh, let alone the failure of the underlying data. But then I was really more interested in this reliability point because you see that affordability point made all the time, but this is their answer to reliability. They say that concerns about round-the-clock availability of electricity from highly renewable grid, a common fear, are mostly misplaced. And I just pause for a second because that mostly is an interesting word. Like That means it's not totally misplaced, so I'd love to hear from them what they think is... uh, 
you know, the part that is not misplaced. But then they go on and say that the Department of Energy has assessed that renewables that are commercially available today, combined with a more flexible electric grid, whatever that means, can reliably supply up to 80% of our electricity in 2050. Uh, why not today? That's not clear. And then they mentioned that four European countries with virtually no hydro get 46 to 71% of their electricity from uh, renewables. And you know they never tell us uh, what those countries pay. But if you look at the evidence supplied for this, you know, um, reliability of wind and solar, uh, the they link to a video that they put together that basically says that, well, if we use enough wind and solar and then bounce it with a little bit of um, of dispatchable on demand uh, renewables like geothermal, then we'll be fine. And they suggest that that's what Germany and Denmark and a, a few other countries in Europe are already largely doing. So I'm definitely interested in anything Stefan has to say, breaking down some of those claims. But to me, it was just striking that these are just completely radical claims and there's no real evidence that any person could really parse there. Well, I, yeah, I want to hear what Stefan has to say as well. But one thing to note about this, so think about if you're at all familiar with the world of of startups, startup projections that startups make when they're soliciting investment or even even uh, business projections that businesses are making. It's just, it's notorious that businesses will say all kinds of things that are wrong about the future. Uh, and it's some combination of because it's hard to, to know what the future will be like when you're talking about things that, that haven't been done, plus there are changing conditions. And so that's one thing. I just lost my train of thought um, on the other term in in on the other thing in terms of of what makes it it difficult to have different kinds of of projections of the future. But actually, a big part of it is just that. Oh, and then and then also people just have all sorts of incentives. They're generally incentivized to be overly optimistic about their own technology. So that's just a phenomenon, even with private businesses where you have markets and whatnot. And the more speculative the technology, the more dubious the projections. But now we're talking in the realm of government force, where we're just talking about people who are trying to get control of the government and they're just trying to reassure us well if you if you impose my energy plan and Lovins has been asking this for 45 years then it'll all be okay so i think it was in 74 definitely sometimes sometime in the 70s where he said oh virtual what i think he called it a so soft technology but solar and other soft technologies can supply most of our needs pretty soon and he's saying that in the 70s and the thing is that what you would actually need to figure out to to make something work is not something that they're even remotely capable of doing, uh, that, that no one is really capable of doing when you're dealing with very, very speculative technologies. So when I hear what Don is saying, it's just these guys aren't even really uh, trying. They're in there. They're just they're being so sloppy. They're not even they're not looking at the all in cost. As you mentioned, they're just finding, oh, yeah, some study says this. And yet they're asking for life and death power over people's lives by controlling the energy supply, or in this case, I think, destroying the energy supply. And there's just something that has to shift in terms of how we perceive people who make these claims about, oh, 
my energy alternative can do this or my plan can do this. It's it's like when the Chinese or the Soviets had five-year plans. There's something about you have to realize this is not a real plan. There's very much a guilty till proven innocent uh, attitude that we should have toward this kind of thing. And the number one thing we should say is prove it. Prove it on any scale be tr- before demanding the right to impose it on every scale. Stefan, any thoughts that you have? Yeah, one particularly interesting argument that was mentioned by, by Lovins as a justification for how all this uh, renewable business works without actual storage uh, was that, okay, we can just produce uh, solar and wind in some area of the United States when the wind isn't blowing and the sun isn't shining in another part of the United States. And, I, you know, that's an interesting theory, but we are running the live experiment and uh, probably many people have already heard about this. There's something called the dark doldrums in uh, in Central Europe um, almost every year uh, towards winter season. And what that means is that solar isn't producing much because of the weather. And at the same time, wind isn't producing a lot. And uh, that happens uh, not every year, but it happens often enough so that it's relevant. And this, con- this weather condition then keeps or is alive over several days often over all of Central Europe. So the entire region doesn't get any juice from solar and wind. (laughs) And so it's not true that you can then just transfer from one area to the next area and you're good. And even if it would actually work, let's say, you know, there's a region in the United States where this would actually work. Think about the amount of overproduction you would need in all areas so that Every time one area falls flat for 80% of its capacity or 75 or whatever they are, they are planning for, and the others have to compensate for that. And this debt capital then, you know, for the rest of the year just stands around. So this kind of extreme event, like the dark doldrums in Central Europe, this is driving up the costs and of the system. And, and so it's, it has been mentioned many times and analyzed many times, and we are running the life experiment. And you know, every year we are seeing this bottleneck of uh, capacity where we have to reactivate um, old coal power plants and additional capacity from from foreign countries and so on in Germany. So it's not like we don't have uh, empirical experience with this, and it, it's not going to work. Yeah, I keep I keep coming back to this idea that. We're allowing to just as a society, we're allowing way too much of people able to just make up things or to put it colloquially, pull things out of their asses and then say, oh, well, here's why it won't work. And here's why it won't work. And here's why it won't work. And notice that in other areas of life, you don't have to do this. Even even a situation where, say, Microsoft, an amazingly potent company said, oh, we're going to have a competitor to the iPod. So that doesn't seem like that's a lot easier in a sense than creating uh, a totally unprecedented form of power using primarily unreliable fuels, which nobody has done at all. Like that's, that seems a lot harder than creating a decent competitor to an iPod. And yet with the Zune, people acknowledge, oh yeah, Microsoft completely failed at it. They, They just did not succeed at all. And yet, and in general, we don't have to pay for that. I mean, if you're, if you're a stockholder in Microsoft, then you have to pay for, for that mistake, but hopefully then the, 
the knowledge that they got there may apply somewhere else. But but as a customer, and maybe as an early adopting customer, you were optimistic, and in that sense, you have to pay. But basically, people's bad ideas do not cost you because they're not imposed upon you. And this is a, a great idea of Ayn Rand's, which she talks about the separation of state and economics. And the idea is somebody else can have all sorts of ideas about how to organize the economy, but they can't impose them on you. You're free to interact with the people that that are actually doing something that's valuable to you. So what we have in energy is we have this idea that you're allowed to force your economic ideas on everyone since we need to protect ourselves from climate change, allegedly. So that that just becomes this license to impose any crackpot idea on the whole population. But given how important energy is to human life, we need really, really high bars of this technology is proven before it is even considered as a significant replacement. Uh, So even with nuclear, there's so much to work out in terms of it being a mass replacement, but let alone the unreliables. So this is something I'm going to think about more and and also address at least somewhat in the next version of Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, because it's, it's a big problem that these crackpot ideas are treated as innocent until proven guilty, and then that they can just be imposed upon us by force. And then we're just at the mercy of them, just like the Soviets were at the mercy of Lysenko's really bad genetic ideas. Whereas in a free society, he just would have had a failing farm and his investors, if, or he might not have even gotten investors, but a very small percentage of people would have paid the price by choice instead of everyone paying the price not by choice. Stefan, what's your first big story today? Uh, speaking of cost for renewables, uh, a new study by the Energy Policy Institute at the University of Chicago confirms the cost escalation by solar and wind. And so what the authors did was they analyzed states that adopted a renewable portfolio standard, which is essentially a mandate to implement a certain amount of uh, renewables, mostly solar and wind, in the state with those that uh, who did not. And uh, I'll just read a couple of findings from the study. Seven years after passage of an RPS, which is Renewable Portfolio Standard Program, the required renewable share of generation is 1.8 percentage points higher and average retail electricity prices are 1.3 cents per kilowatt or 11% higher. Another quote is, these cost estimates significantly exceed the marginal operational costs of renewables and likely reflect costs that renewables impose on the generation system, including those associated with their intermittency, higher transmission costs, and any stranded assets cost assigned to ratepayers. Third quote, uh, the cost per metric ton of CO2 abated exceeds $130 in all specifications and ranges up to $460, making it at least several times larger than conventional estimates of the social cost of carbon. And one final quote I found interesting. The indirect cost of RPS programs, which have not been possible to comprehensively measure to date, appear to account for the majority of RPS program costs. So the latter point means, of course, that the actual cost of solar panels and wind turbines aren't that relevant because the cost that these intermittent renewables impose on the entire system. That is what drives up the cost. And so this is, of course, something we and others have mentioned over and over again. 
their indirect cost of implementing solar and wind intermittent renewables, which in essentially all Green New Deal and other plans make up the vast majority of renewables in the, in the future, uh, they, are, they are simply imposing costs because of their physical nature. It's not like, oh, we'll just work this out with a little more engineering and then uh, solar and wind will be cheap enough. It's, it's almost irrelevant how cheap the Chinese can produce solar cells or how cheap the wind turbine becomes. If you increase the share of solar and wind on the power grid, costs will go up for the system and the ratepayer will have ultimately to pay for this. And uh, I think, so now they are doing this uh, with, a, with a more numerical analysis and uh, we are usually talking about this in qualitative terms uh, simply because it's very difficult to, to analyze this and measure this directly because there is no sort of laboratory grid that produces uh, or that generates uh, like 80% from renewables and then, you know, can compare this to the exact same power grid in another laboratory that doesn't do this. But so it's it's a clear indicator for what we have said all along that the actual drivers of cost in electric power grids with renewables are these indirect costs of, you know, an additional transmission uh, equipment necessary, uh, the intermittent nature turning coal and gas power plants into stop and go traffic uh, auxiliaries and uh, also one thing i found particularly interesting is that it's very significant that these renewable portfolio standards lead to premature uh, retirement or at least uh, lower capacity factors for conventional dispatchable um, power sources and that of course imposes costs as well because you have capital and operational cost for a coal power plant that's only used like 30% of the time uh, compared to its original planning, which was more like 70, 80% plus. Uh, I'm glad to see that there is some amount of common sense and honesty that's being exhibited here because it's really been breathtaking how much dishonesty there is. And I've particularly noticed this working on the new version of Moral Case, where I've been diving into different issues and really asking, okay, ha has the situation changed since I last wrote about this and, and really la last wrote the, this in-depth treatment of it? And is it is it possible that these these all these predictions are as wrong as they think as they seem to be? And yeah, they they are. There's just so much distortion going on. And I'll connect this again to the idea that there's not freedom here. There's not a free market here. And thus, what's what's governing these prevailing ideas about the costs of electricity and the viability of unreliable fuels as the basis for electricity is, is primarily just different kinds of status maneuvering in a system that is obsessed with CO2 emissions and is obsessed with being renewable and is obsessed with being green versus real capability to improve human life by providing abundant, reliable power to a lot of people. And so it is, when I use terms like crackpot ideas, when people are talking about, oh yeah, I'm going to use unreliable fuels to run the world, you should view that as a crackpot idea until somebody demonstrates it. And really most business ideas are crackpot ideas until they're demonstrated. So Basically, everyone's economic ideas, unless they've demonstrated them, are 
are guilty until proven innocent. Now, that's not quite the right way to think of it because guilt and innocence you, you think of in the context of the legal system. And, and here the idea is you're not you're not pronouncing anything guilty or innocent. You're leaving it free, but it sh certainly should not be believed. And you say, okay, I'll believe it when I see it. But, but then when you have all these incentives for people to just claim all of these unbelievable things, just don't believe them. I don't believe any of them until they actually demonstrate stuff. And then the more they explain, the more there are these obvious, obvious holes. Don, what's your next story? Uh, yeah, so um, last year, the Trump administration withdrew from its nuclear agreement with Iran and reinstated sanctions against them. And they said that they were going to take punitive measures against countries that continue to purchase Iranian oil. But we gave out waivers to a number of different countries. And now we're basically saying that we're not going to allow any waivers, that anybody who purchases oil from Iran, from Iran is going to face sanctions. And the, and the big five countries that are at question here are China, India, Turkey, Japan, and South Korea. And as uh, partly as a response to this, which because this was not expected by the markets, oil is up to $74 a barrel, which is a six-month high. And uh, interestingly, the Trump administration has not kind of wavered in the face of that, but have said that they expect that to, to decline as U.S. oil production, as well as elsewhere in the world, will rise to, to compensate for those prices. Um, I don't necessarily think that sanctions are the best way to deal with Iran, which has had a consistent history of murdering and threatening Americans. But insofar as you're going to have sanctions, I think I, I'm, I think the fact that uh, we're going to enforce them and make them meaningful, or at least try to make them meaningful, and that we have a um, we have an oil and gas industry here that has the capability to not leave us at the mercy of uh, hostile regimes, I think is a that that is something that is a very good situation to be in versus be, being totally at the mercy which we were you know even 20 years ago yeah i'm really interested to see how this is going to work out in part because when i used to write more about the foreign policy aspects of things i i mentioned something like well if you could actually have an embargo on iran that worked that would be a really interesting mechanism of change that would be a, that would be a use of force but a use of force that is much more appealing than killing a whole bunch of people and you know killing a whole bunch of people is sometimes necessary to protect your rights but it, i'll be really interested to see how it how it plays out and i don't know enough of the specifics to know what elements i think are a good idea and what aren't but except except that the general idea of x of having a policy that's trying to get at the right goal in the sense of at least protecting America from any threat emanating from Iran, that I like that general direction. And then I like the idea of of trying to do something that will be not that will be not violent if if but at the same time being effective versus when people just say, oh, let's just do diplomacy and let's just send somebody to talk there. But there's no real leverage that that seems very dubious to me. So I'm really interested to see how this plays out. Stefan, what's your next story? Pennsylvania Republican State Senator Gene Yaw, I think is the right pronunciation, uh, hit the news recently, and he uh, stated that 
states like New York, New, York, New Jersey and Maryland, which have uh, blocked and delayed crucial pipeline infrastructure for Pennsylvania, uh, should not be able to buy Pennsylvania natural gas. So the background is, of course, that you know states like New York have banned fracking, but they are also uh, blocking pipelines and other infrastructure for other states uh, so that they cannot reach markets. And uh, in Pennsylvania, the natural gas produced there is uh, heavily discounted because of this. So there's a bunch of obstructionism there. And uh, so to give one example, New York State Department of Environmental Con Conservation has repeatedly denied pipeline companies applications for water quality certificates, which they need to build their pipelines. And this then at least dele delays, but even, maybe even blocks uh, the pipelines that Pennsylvania needs to take advantage of their natural gas resources. And uh, so I'm personally not a huge fan of this sort of scorched earth uh, rhetoric or, or tactics that essentially punish everyone in New York State and, and other states for uh, the bad policies of their uh, current uh, governments, even those who oppose these governments. Uh, but I, I think it's, it's valuable to bring this discussion to light where, you know, bad anti-energy policies in one state can impact the viability of an industry in a, in a different state. And uh, I think this clearly violates the Commerce Clause in the U.S. Constitution which was uh, you know, implemented to promote trade between states and with foreigners, because even back then, uh, when the constitution uh, was drafted, it was recognized that trade is a beneficial thing and would you know, increase the unity among states or, and colonies. Um, and I, I think one of the worst parts is that the, the governments like uh, Andrew Cuomo of New York State they actually seem to want to obstruct uh, natural gas production in states like uh, Pennsylvania. So they, their ideal is to actually keep it in the ground. And they are trying to impose their local or domestic power on other states uh, to sort of reach their political and philosophical ideals. And that's very bad. And that's an anti-energy and anti-freedom ideal. Stefan, you mentioned that you don't generally approve of these scorched earth tactics, which I, I definitely get. But I am I am quite sympathetic toward them, and I would I am very interested in how to explore versions of denying attackers of energy energy. That it seems like a very fertile thing, and I would I would just love it if. You know, you could have the the uh, fuel supplier who wouldn't supply DiCaprio fuel or wouldn't supply Al Gore fuel. So this is something. If any listeners have any ideas about this, send them to us, and yeah, we'll see. That there, there's just there's something very, very deeply wrong about the extent to which people use use energy and choose to use it and then condemn it, and that's. That's definitely something I want to get better at pointing out and perhaps punishing people for. There's a an actually constructive way to do it. Don, what's your next story? So uh, 
over in the UK, uh, there's a group called Extinction Rebellion that's been causing a large number of public disruptions as part of protesting climate change. And this means they've you know blocked traffic, uh, which if you've ever been in London, <laughs> it is already a mess there, but bridges, public transportation. And so this organization, it was formed by some academics in Britain last year, and uh, they have other you know, offshoots at um, a lot of other countries. And they're, they're explicitly, their aim is to keep engaging in these disru- publicly disruptive protests in order to get the government to adopt their agenda, which consists of, in, the, in Britain at least, declaring a climate and ecological emergency, reducing greenhouse gas emissions to zero by 2025, halt biodiversity loss and be led by citizens assemblies on climate and ecological justice. And as bad as that is, the thing that really I find offensive about this is that they are claiming and the media is characterizing these as peaceful protests. And it's being say, they're saying that they're, these guys are using peaceful protests uh, in order to disrupt infrastructure to force people to confront the climate emergency and interrupt their daily lives so that they will have to uh, take action on climate change. And like, that is not peaceful. In fact, I think you can make a strong argument that it's a criminal organization in that like their whole mission is we're going to violate whether it's traffic laws or like our whole goal is to stop people from being able to get to where they want to get to being able to travel from being like, let's rob people of their time and their lives in order to embrace our agenda. Never mind the content of that agenda, which would be uh, true, which would truly result in extinction of the human race. And, um, and, and so I, I mean, treating this as anything other than an organization that should be viewed with like the largest amount of disdain and arguably as criminal, I, I find really offensive. Yeah, I agree. Lock them up. <laughs> uh, the, the best thing I read by this, uh, b- on this, by the way, is uh, from a former Power Hour guest, Brendan O'Neill. And I highly recommend everybody look up The Cult of Greta Thunberg. Um, because he just has a lot of gems, but uh, just one piece of it that I found just perfectly captured what's going on here. He said, it struck me that this was a march against people. Most radical protests and direct direct action is aimed at officialdom or government or people with power. This macabre, macabre schlep through London was aimed squarely at ordinary citizens. Bannards and placards made no disguise of the marchers' contempt for how the masses live. We were told that meat equals heat. That is, if you carry on eating meat, you fat bastards, the planet will get even hotter. And that driving and flying are destroying Mother Earth. Of course, it's okay for them to fly. Emma Thompson jetted first class from LA to London to lecture us, please, about our eco-destructive holiday making. It's only a problem when we do it. It's only bad when we take advantage of the miracle of mass food production and the expansion of flight to make our lives fuller and more pleasurable. They detest that. They detest mass society and its inhabitants the masses. So just uh, a lot of gems like that. I'm surprised Emma Thompson went as low as first class. She's not doing a PJ, private jet. Maybe her career is uh, is not at its peak. I, I mentioned that in part because one interesting thing about private jets, which I 
do not fly, but I've, I've been on a, a couple of them and um, just because events I was going to, there were other people going. Actually, one time I went on a private jet with Alex Trebek, which is a whole fun, uh, fun story, or at least it was a private plane. I don't know if it was, a, it was a private jet. But one thing that's fascinating is that so many really successful people, even if they claim to be environmentalists and want to reduce their CO2 emissions, fly private jets. And take, well, Warren Buffett wouldn't talk about so much about reducing CO2 emissions. So I don't, I don't mean to cast any aspersions on him, but he's an interesting example because he's known as a super modest person in terms of, you know, he pays $2.52 a day or whatever in the mornings to buy an Egg McMuffin. I forget exactly what the details of his, his commute are. And, you know, he's drinking cherry Coke and living in the same house in Omaha for a long period of time. But he'll say, you know, I live just like any college student, except I fly a private jet. And if you look at the economics of it, it's so expensive to fly a private jet, but it's so worth it to people because it is the it is the amount of money that they can spend. It's an amount of money they can spend a large amount that gets them more time. And you can see with Elon Musk, for example, he's he he's been called out by some people for just flying around in a private jet all the time. And the idea is, well, my time is important. And you just think about that is true. Your time is important, but that means other people's time is important to them. And what these terrorists are doing is that they're terrorizing people's time, really, or they're at least interfering with people's time. They're taking away their irreplaceable time in in the name of this other agenda. And there's something very perverse about regarding that as peaceful. And I think the perspective is, well, if we're interfering with a government, yeah, that's bad. That's violent. That's warlike. But if it's just people, I mean, if we're just stopping people from building projects and going about their lives, oh, well, that's that's no big deal. Like your lives belong to us. If we think that you're bad, if we think you're doing something bad, yeah, then then you owe us any amount of attention and slowing down of our life that that uh you know, that we decide. Stefan, what's your next story? Facebook might have to pay up for its renewable energy policies. <clears throat> oh, I love this story. <laughs> a public regulatory commission in New Mexico ordered a utility to bill Facebook with about half the cost of a $85 million transmission line. And that line will be needed to accommodate renewable energy from solar and wind power in the area. And uh, the background is that in New Mexico, Facebook is going to build a large data center, which, of course, uh, will be a large power consumer. And uh, this has sparked some concern about a chilling effect for investors because Facebook didn't anticipate that they would have to pay for the infrastructure at all. And um, Facebook, of course, wants to claim that its data centers powered 100% renewable energy. Uh, and the commission now asserts that the new infrastructure does not benefit the general ratepayer, which would mean that uh, you know the utility would just pay for it and just let the ratepayer pay for it. Um, but only Facebook and wholesale operators uh, would benefit from that because they need to shift uh, unreliable power from solar and wind around, and this cannot be built to the public. Uh, and the naive observer, of course, would ask, <clears throat> well, if Facebook is just trying to power their data center with 100% solar and wind. Why don't they do just that? And why do they need this power line to the grid? 
And uh, of course, the most obvious explanation is that they are actually getting the reliable power grid mix for their data center. And then they have some kind of power purchase agreement or green credits that we talked about in, in early episodes of Power Hour uh, to claim that they use 100% solar and wind or renewables or whatever they formulate in these agreements. And uh, so now there's the legal dispute between uh, the commission and the utility and Facebook. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know the details of what they had contractually uh, agreed to exactly. But my message to Facebook is own it. Because Facebook is sort of making this power infrastructure necessary because they want 100% renewable power, at least on the paper. They are big power consumer and they need reliable power. And, you know, ideally they should actually cut the power lines to the power grid and generate their own dedicated renewable portfolio on site, you know, as, as others have claimed but never done. Um, and even if they have used their market power and political influence to dump these excess costs for the infrastructure on the general public, they still morally own the additional cost imposed on the grid and other generators. So, you know, Facebook now says, yeah, this might have consequences for our long-term operations in New Mexico, but I would say this means Facebook doesn't want to... Uh, fully pay for what they impose on others. Yeah, and it's not like an expensive transmission line is some unimaginable last second unanticipated consequence. It's a pretty obvious thing that you're you're talking about, oh, we're going to totally change the way we generate power. We're going to use unreliable fuels that are in highest concentration and lowest cost in this area and then we're going to try to somehow integrate them with reliable fuels or we need to integrate them with reliable fuels. That the fact that it's unanticipated just shows that people are just clamoring to get into this for different kinds of status reasons and not thinking at all about does this make any sense? Does it make any sense to be powered by 100% solar wind? And if it doesn't make any sense for an area as a whole, how does it make any sense for you as a company to claim to do that or to try to do that? So I, I think this is this is a great kind of development. I'm really glad to see the trend of the unreliables starting to get exposed. I'm also glad to see the related trend of nuclear getting some positive attention. And we're working on the trend of getting people to actually measure everything by human flourishing. Then that will lead to much better thinking about everything. Don, what is your last story? So uh, the New York Times sent out a uh, list of energy and climate related questions to all the announced Democratic candidates. So it's basically everybody you've heard of, a bunch of people you haven't, but not Joe Biden since he isn't yet officially announced. And uh, for the most part, I, I, none of them were surprising, but the most interesting question by far was about the candidate support for nuclear. And of the 18 declared candidates, only seven were unequivocally in favor of new nuclear energy development. And the list is uh, Cory Booker, John Delaney, John Hickenlooper, Jay Inslee, Amy uh, Klobuchar, Tim Ryan, and Andrew Yang. And so you'll notice that most of the well-known candidates uh, from Bernie Sanders to Mayor Pete to Elizabeth Warren, Kamala Harris, Kristen Gillibrand are not in the list. Most of them either refuse to answer it or in the case of, I mean, Bernie 
and uh, and Warren, I think uh, some of the others were explicitly anti-nuclear. But the and the major reasons they gave for not supporting when they gave reasons were the idea where the you know false claim that it's a safety threat and worry about what is really a non-issue or a solved issue, which is the disposal of nuclear waste. And I, I mean, it's really revealing. And in part, what's revealing is the non-answers, the refusal of many candidates to answer, because uh, I think, you know, it's for the same reason the Green New Deal tried not to explicitly take uh, a, a position on nuclear. Um, but as we've talked about in the show, if you genuinely thought that we face a climate emergency that could, um, you know, a, an ex that was an existential threat to humanity, then the idea of being on the fence about nuclear, let alone being opposed to it, is just insane. What when they're asking for the degrees of support? What does it mean when they unequivocally support it? What is what are they actually committing to? Um, well, the, it's not entirely set in stone, but so for example. I think the the clearest um, you know defense you get is from somebody like Cory Booker who said nuclear energy should be part of the decarbonation toolbox. Uh, you get um, let's see what was one of the other ones that was really good. Uh, it, well, even unequivocal, I think, is a little bit generous. That's how the New York Times uh, characterizes it. But for instance, John Hickenlooper, the a former Colorado governor, who's actually probably one of the better people among the Democratic candidates on energy issues said, yes, but there has to be a stronger effort to solve the problem of disposable high level, disposal of high level radioactive waste. And um, so usually even the positive ones come with these sort of caveats. And usually the main caveat uh, of the people who are positive on it is that, yeah, but we should put our primary emphasis on renewables so that we can have a truly green uh, solution. So you know, you have, are they say, are they, do they say that in their answers? Yes. Yeah. So let me see if I can find one of those real quick. Um, yeah, as you're looking, I'll just say that, that nothing less than, uh, extreme enthusiasm would be necessary and not just extreme enthusiasm, but policy innovation to liberate it in, in a way that it actually has the best possible chance of helping a lot of people get power. That's it's it's not just enough to say, oh well, yeah, I checked the box. I'm not completely insane. So basically, eleven of them have pleaded complete insanity or refused to say whether they're insane, and the, but the others are are just saying, well, they're they're being they're tiptoeing around the possibility of doing the sane thing. Yeah. So just this is uh, Jay Inslee, who's the um, Washington State Governor, and uh, organizing his whole campaign around climate. And his answer is that we must move to carbon-free power sector. So I would not take any zero emission sources of power generation off the table. But my focus first and foremost would be first and foremost on investing in the expansion of renewables, efficiency, smart grid, and energy storage technologies. We should continue to explore the next generation of advanced nuclear technologies, but safety is of paramount importance as is a stable long-term plan for dealing with waste. So even the, you know, unequivocal, these are not, uh, the, the majority of those are not uh, loud champions of nuclear, but in effect conceding that, yeah, nuclear needs to play some role. 
So my, my translation of that is I, as in the government, you know, the, the model of inefficiency and failure when it comes to economic endeavors, I'm going to invest all of my inefficiency in something that doesn't work. So that's, uh, yeah, that's unimpressive from Governor Inslee. Stefan, what is your last story today? There's been a court victory for climate heretic. So former James Cook University professor and marine scientist, Dr. Peter Ritt, has uh, won his court case against his firing and gag orders by the university. Uh, and the Australian judge found all 17 findings by the university for his alleged misconduct to be unlawful. Um, so Ritt has been in the crosshairs because he's uh, sort of a climate skeptic and uh, Specifically, his focus is the Great Barrier Reef in Australia, and he has been critical of uh, research by other professors at the university and elsewhere and about the quality of their scientific findings. And he has also been uh, very vocal in the media about, you know, that the Great Barrier Reef, uh, despite uh, all the rumors about you know climate change impacts and other human impacts on it is actually in relatively good shape and that uh, something like coral bleaching happening there and so on uh, these are consequences of many factors including hurricane damage and uh, you know uh, other environmental changes and they happen regularly and parts of the reef are always bleaching and usually they, it recovers fairly quickly and so this narrative, of course, went against the grain and uh, the Great Barrier Reef, of course, is very iconic and internationally renowned and very useful in terms of, you know, gaining funding for research and projects to protect and save it. And also very useful as an argument in climate change, because so many potential impacts could be uh, conjured to threaten it in the future. So there's often this narrative that, oh yeah, the Great Barrier Reef will be gone by something like 2050 or so because of ocean acidification from CO2 in the atmosphere that then goes into the oceans or from global warming that warms the upper ocean layer and so on and so forth. And Ritz, Ritz essentially is very focused on the empirical side of this as far as I have seen his material and he's a very reasonable person. And he says, well, that's mostly the, this doom and gloom narrative about the Great Barrier Reef is very exaggerated and the quote unquote science about it uh, needs some, uh, you know, decent uh, quality control. And the university then, of course, uh, tried to first silence him and then fired him, actually. And this seems to be, you know, a good first round. Maybe the university or the department will actually uh, go to the next level of courts in Australia. We'll see. But he also received a lot of funding from, a, I think, GoFundMe campaign, uh, you know, which received international support. So it was like a quarter of a million dollars in, in money that he uh, raised by this to defend himself. And he expects a new round of, of uh court procedures might go to the million dollar mark for him and legal expenses. This this reminds me a little bit of, I've been reading a little bit about 
polar bears lately. Stephen, did you follow this Susan Crockford story? I read a little bit from her. So, yeah, I, I the main the main finding was that polar bears, you know, have have different populations that behave that have different trends, but overall, polar bears are doing pretty well right now. That's a summary for me. Yeah. So the I've been reading the book. I think it's called the, something like the Polar Bear Crisis that Never Happened or the Polar Bear Catastrophe that Never mm-hmm. Happened by by Crockford. I'm maybe a third or so of the way through it. It is is really interesting. Definitely the way she writes, I find to be appealing and and credible. There's just the, the her there's just she has a lot of subtlety of her style that comes across as quite honest. And also one thing I really like is when she's engaging opponents, she seems good at, at quoting them at significant length and then making criticisms of them that are clear. Or in many cases, what she's doing is she's showing them making a criticism of her that completely contradicts the reality of what she said. And I have some familiarity with this because when uh, Jody Freeman, the Harvard Law professor, made a wrote an article in Energy Law Journal about moral case for fossil fuels, my response was a lot of it was just to quote what she said and then quote the book and show that she was completely misrepresenting it. So I have a lot of sympathy toward that type of thing. And one one point that came up in this polar bear book that I really found fascinating was that people were making assumptions about polar bears that dramatically underestimated their adaptability. And one thing was that, oh, if they didn't have a certain amount of sea ice, then they just wouldn't get food. And then it turns out, well, certain polar bears at least are very good swimmers, and they were able to get food in a whole bunch of other ways. And I found this fascinating because of the following point. I am usually focused on how the green movement treats human beings as if we are other animals. That is, if our environment changes, they act like, oh, well, we're just going to try to do the same things that we were doing before, and then we'll perish. So they don't recognize the degree of adaptability, which even extends to mastery, that human beings have. But then it turns out, at least with polar bears, that they don't even accept, they don't even recognize the degree of adaptability that other species have and that other species are not just like some change happens in their environment. They don't just go out of existence. That's often a false model. And this this actually reminds me of a lecture I saw once that was talking about how most extinctions are not from the kinds of environmental habitat changes that we think of. They're mostly from invasive species. Stefan, what's your impression of that? Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, it's at least true for the higher life forms that we have observed. So, you know, when, and much of this is anthropogenic, of course, you know, when uh, Western colonists came to Australia, of course, they brought a lot of new species that the the local species were not adapted to. And I think that's, yeah, I, I think it's sort of for a mass extinction that would be like, you would see it in life forms like insects and so on, where you know they were really threatened. But the higher life forms are a not that super important for the ecosystems at large, I think, and uh, they are also not uh, the you know the relevant species are not that threatened. And we focus on like 
iconic species like polar bears or certain bee forms uh, and so on. And I, I think there's also a lot of just the accounting of it plays a role. So if you have subspecies, like you're, you're talking about bees and then there are like 20,000 subspecies of that. And if three subspecies are, uh, you know, close to extinction because maybe they only lived on three islands to, uh, islands to begin with, then that's like a certain percentage of extinction, right? So I, th I think there's a lot of um, not so much scientific things going on in the accounting business with this mass extinction narrative. One more point on this issue, and then I will wrap up the show for today. In general, what I am afraid of in the world are powerful forces that are incentivized, that are directly incentivized to destroy me. So for example, I am afraid of, say, um, you know, types of infection that are very hard to cure with antibiotics. You know, that, that kind of thing is really scary to me because that kind of infection actually survives at my expense. It has, it's not, it's not, it's not actually trying to hurt me. It doesn't care about me one way or the other, but its survival is directly opposed to mine. So when I get afraid of things, it's, it's on the level of, okay, what things like that exist? And invasive species have that kind of element that if a species that is vulnerable to an invasive species, they are directly, you know, their extinction is in the direct interest of some other powerful organism. And that's when you're, you're much more likely to get a very destructive result versus oh, the trees are moved in a different way or something like that, or the ice melts. That can be significant, but it's nowhere near as significant as a deliberate, powerful, incentivized force against you. So that's something to think about in terms of prioritization. It's also, this didn't occur to me until just now, but it's also why I'm afraid of the green movement, because that is, that is a deliberate force that is incentivized against me in the sense that it's ideal is is a dehumanized planet and most of its advocates you know most of its hosts that are carrying it don't realize that they think it's ideal it's just oh a cleaner environment but everything is everything good and everything good and prosperous about our life is preserved and it's just a cleaner more stable place but actually the ideal is a dehumanized planet and that you know that's a very very scary thing and then people have all sorts of incentive to get higher and higher status of different forms by promoting a dehumanized planet. So that is a scary kind of force, much as it was a scary force when people uh, with socialism and Nazism and and now socialism is back in a in a substantive way. So when you know when people have agents, these powerful agents that are anti your life, and then there are these powerful incentives in their favor that's a dangerous kind of situation. So on this show, we're trying to, to fight off that particular danger by offering the ideal of a, of a humanized planet, of a planet that's a great environment for human beings to survive and flourish. And part of that is having lots and lots and lots of access to abundant, reliable power. So that is one of the ultimate goals of Power Hour. I hope you've enjoyed today's show. Uh, we're going to change a little bit how we do communication. So I'm going to appoint Don, the primary contact, because we're sometimes getting emails from different people. So if you have any questions, comments, love mail, or hate mail, email them to Don. 
who is Don at industrialprogress.net. And also, if you have any great events that require a speaker, email Don at Don at industrialprogress.net. And if you have any kind of high-level organization that wants help with messaging on energy issues, you want some consulting from us, email Don with uh, consulting. So you can email him with speaking or consulting or whatever else you want in the subject line. But I am appointing him, at least for now, our primary contact at Power Hour. So send all of your feedback, et cetera, his way. Okay, that's it for this week. We'll be back next week. Until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.